Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. understand is like democratic partisans are democratic partisans like there's a you know people who vote democrat like identify as democrats they're gonna be pissed if you challenge the leader of the party for like no reason and like you know kind of like a lot of downsides and they're not interested in voting for these like obvious grifters <laughs> like, like, Marianne like Williamson RFK or, Jr. Yeah, or Robert, Robert Kennedy Jr. or you know, like whoever. Hello and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Noah Berlatsky. Noah is probably the most regular freelance contributor to Public Notice, where he's written all sorts of interesting, provocative pieces, ranging from unpacking the Marianne Williamson presidential campaign to talking about gun violence in this country. And actually, just yesterday, he had a really thoughtful piece uh, talking about Republican anti-trans bigotry and drawing some connections with eliminationist rhetoric in other societies and some of the dangers that that poses going forward, um, you know, kind of looking at that in a historical context, not just a political context. I first started working with Noah about a year ago now, just ahead of the birth of my son. Um, when my son was about to arrive, I knew that I needed some freelance help. And I got connected with Noah because we were following each other on Twitter. And I really enjoyed his commentary there. So since then, he's been a regular contributor about once a week. And if you are a regular reader of the, no, the of the newsletter, you no doubt are familiar with his work. And uh, we get into a lot of the different interesting things that he has written for the newsletter. So it's an interesting conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it. Next week, I am excited to be joined by Tim Mack. Uh, Tim is a freelance journalist who is living in Kiev, Ukraine right now, covering the war there. So I'll be talking with him live from his apartment in Kiev. Uh, that should be a fascinating conversation. So look for that next Thursday morning, along with every episode of the podcast these days. Uh, please like the show where you can and share it amongst your circle to help spread the word. Without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Noah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. I am thrilled to be joined today by Noah Berlatsky. If you are a reader of my newsletter, Public Notice, Noah probably needs no introduction because he has been uh, writing for the newsletter for about a year now, and he also writes his own substack called Everything is Horrible. Uh, you can also read him. I know you've been published, Noah, in Mashable. And um, where else are you writing these days if people want to find your work? You know, I write, I write for The Independent semi-regularly. I write for the Chicago Reader. I do arts criticism. The easiest thing to do is just follow the Substack, I guess. And I, you know, have a roundup where I link to everything I wrote that week. So, And you are extremely prolific as a writer. I mean, I'm sometimes amazed when uh, you and I touch base once a week to kind of talk through post ideas for your work in public notice, how quickly you can turn really thoughtful stories around that are very in-depth, you know, with a lot of good analysis and context. And so um, certainly, you know, that's stuff that I think unless, you know, if, if you're reading your work, I think it shines through, but especially when you you edit someone's work, especially someone like myself, who's been editing now for, you know, about a decade, you know, you were one of the easiest people who I've ever edited in terms of, you know, filing a draft and having it ready to be published. So, uh, you know, that's certainly an impressive skill that you have. 
you know, I've been freelancing for 20 years. The, the only way to make money. I mean, you know, if you want to make a living, you've got to be, you've got to be fast. <laughs> so, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Well, that's uh, why, you know, I was kind of amazed um, not to get too into left field here, but that the Tim Alberta piece in the Atlantic, which basically led to Chris Lick's ouster, Tim Alberta, who wrote that, you know, the long and short of it was that he basically spent the the better part of the last year shadowing around Chris Licht, talking to him, even like shadowing him to his workouts. And so to be able to spend a year on something, I mean, obviously the, the Atlantic has a lot of resources they can afford to, you know, put a very talented writer on a story like that, that basically turns out like a short book of sorts. But if you you know are kind of hustling, like you are, like I am with the newsletter, you know, it's usually kind of more quick turns, blog posts or newsletters over a period of time. But, you know, the currency of, of the game that you're in and my game is kind of turning around things pretty quick. Yeah, I would say that's right. I, I, I have trouble even imagining what it would be like to have the resources to do to do something for a year. I did write a book, a book about Wonder Woman. The original oh, wow. Wonder okay. Wo- the original Wonder Woman comics back in 2014 for Rutgers University Press. That was something I'd been working. I mean, I sort of like was blogging about the original Wonder Woman comics for a long time, like a year, more than a year. So, you know, I sort of done a lot of research. I still don't quite know how I managed it, though, because, you know, I mean, it wasn't it's an academic book, so I didn't really... I mean, they paid okay, me a little, but... You know, the original writer, William Marston, lived in this polyamorous relationship and was... I mean, he was basically this kind of weird gender theorist who thought women should rule. Oh, I wasn't aware and, of that. Uh, okay, there's there's layers uh, to this, oh, apparently. Uh, oh, yeah. There's been kind of... There was a movie. Jill Lepore wrote a book about it. I don't know. She's a pretty famous historian. But yeah, I mean, so the original comics are all kind of bondage and crazy matriarchies. Yeah, yeah. it's super fun. That's something that I kind of grapple with these days is, you know, especially given the type of work I do, you know, trying to be immersed in cable news and like, you know, media, political events. You know, I've been reading, you know, I always have at least one or two nonfiction books that I'm reading at a given time. But to find time these days to read fiction, it's kind of a failing of you know, of my own, but it's also just like, there's only so many hours in a day. And that's kind of the one thing right now that I've, I've sort of cast aside, but, um, you know, having very little kids, uh, these days, one and three years old, I mean, we're watching these days, a lot of like bluey, there could be interesting layers to it, but it's, I'm so not really paying attention to it when it's on that, you know, the kids like it and it keeps them occupied, you know, for windows of time where either I can, you know, do a little bit of work or do something else around the house that needs to get done. And so, um, it's tricky when you have kids for sure. You know, my daughter's 19 now, so I mean, she's still she's still here. She's going to be going to school around here, but uh, it's yeah. not it's not the same. Um, but, you know, I'm actually I'm writing poetry now. That's kind of the, the hobby I'm very doing. Pro- so, yeah. yeah, I mean, that the, very prolific, not only with your journalism and your criticism, but also poetry. So, um, right. I, I'm yes. guessing the, the vast majority of people listening to this probably already follow you if the readers of the newsletter, but if they don't, uh, it's N Burlat on Twitter. Um, also, everything is horrible on Substack. And actually, you you mentioning your daughter is maybe a good jumping off point for your piece that you wrote in the newsletter today, because you know I don't think this is kind of inside information. Your daughter is trans. And That's right. Piece... Yeah, I've written about that a few times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And your piece today in public notice is basically drawing some of the parallels between Republican anti-trans bigotry, uh, some of the eliminationist rhetoric that is used in that context, 
And, you know, genocidal campaigns historically, whether we're talking about Native peoples here in America or Nazi Germany, um, I think a lot of people reject those sorts of comparisons out of hand because I think for many kind of the lived experience of being in America, especially if you're a white person, uh, a white man in particular, you know, it still kind of feels like we can, you know, read the books we want to read, vote for who we want to vote for and broadly do what we want to do. You know, you having a trans daughter obviously gives you a little bit of a different wind window into that part of our politics, kind of the the culture warring and the bigotry that is at the core of the Republican Party these days. But do you think that has gotten worse in recent years? I mean, I'm sure you've been very sensitive to this having a trans daughter. It's it seems to me like, you know, Republicans have really kind of escalated, you know, trying to turn pride into kind of this toxic thing or any sort of you know, sort of anodyne expression of solidarity with the LGBT community. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, well, I mean, let me let me start with what you're talking about of people being kind of resistant to the idea of there being basically of Nazi analogies or of fascist analogies or of the idea that there's kind of some genocidal intent. I think people are sort of reluctant to sort of like think about that for sort of a range of reasons. One that you pointed out is that it's it's easy to sort of like live in the US and not to really feel targeted. And most of our representations of like genocidal regimes or totalitarian regimes, you know, you watch television or you watch the movies and the representations tend to be like very totalizing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you watch The Handmaid's Tale, right? Gilead is omnipresent. Right. I mean, like they have like total control over sort of like everybody within their jurisdiction Mm -hmm. and everybody's life is sort of like intimately impacted. And that's that's sort of typical or or, or 1984. Right. It's this very totalizing authoritarian regime. And the point and, you know, and often those representations, you know, I mean, in 1984, the main character is this white guy. Right. And kind of the point is that, like, this kind of, like, middle-class white guy, his life is, like, totally restricted mm-hmm. by this totalitarian regime. So people, that's what people think of when they think of, you know, the Nazis or when they think of genocidal regimes. They think, well, you know, here we are, right, on on, on a podcast saying, you know, the right wing is horrible. Yeah. And, you right. know, nobody's, nobody's breaking through the doors, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when you actually read about sort of like how regimes worked you know jim crow right i mean like yeah like during the the early 20th century in the u.s most people like if you weren't black you know people thought of it as a democracy right people still think of that as a democracy people say mm-hmm. well that was a democracy even though you know there was basically this like huge prison camp in the south black people like couldn't vote and were, you know faced just like horrific violence but people are like well yeah that was a democracy and you know even you read about you know what life was like under the nazis there's this great book by claudia coons called the nazi conscience which is basically about how the nazis sold genocidal programs or you know how they made those feel like they were okay there was even dissent you know people sort of feel like mm-hmm. the nazi regime allowed to there was dissent i mean people yeah. would People would refuse to honor boycotts of Jewish businesses. People would talk about how they weren't happy with sort of like Jewish violence. Hitler, you know, early on was very reluctant to like say anything anti-Semitic 
like Mein Kampf was in 1925, and that was very, very anti-Semitic. But once right. he gained power, he really avoided that because it wasn't popular. Yeah. So people kind of like there's, see. There's a lot of think focus of it on as totalizing, yeah. but it isn't. It wasn't well, it, really. It takes you know, a, I mean, it takes a while to get there. You know, I, I think it's part a while of the point. To get there. And there's a lot more history and media about Nazi Germany. You know, roughly 39 to 45 than there is 33 to 39. You know, like we, we focus more on kind of the end state rather than some of the processes and developments that kind of got the society there in the first place. And I, th I think that's part of, you know, part of the comparison here is that, you know, you have to be kind of sensitive to, you know, particularly with, with trans people, how they're being excluded from public life, how that identity is being made toxic. Um, you know, you get in, in in your piece today for public notice about how, you know, their efforts to um, remove trans children from their parents in certain states and, you know, to block even adults from medical treatments. Um, and so, you know, it, it's important to pay attention to some of these developments that maybe for, you know, yourself living in Illinois or me in Minnesota are kind of on the margins and aren't affecting us necessarily here. But, you know, there is a world where, um, you know, if DeSantis wins next year and Republicans control both chambers of Congress, I mean, we're really only one election cycle away from, you know, some of the legislation that we're seeing, like in Florida, for instance, being pursued on a national level. Right. And it's also, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, it's very, very scary in some of these red states. I mean, basically, that's what happened in Jim Crow, right? I mean, there were certain states that were very repressive and then, you know, other states that were sort of more, you know, less repressive, depending on who you are. But, you know, I mean, like it affects everyone. You know, I mean, like we're we're kind of worried about traveling to Florida now, yeah. you know, because there's 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 pretty aggressive bans on trans people in public, you know, using public restrooms. And it's kind of like, well, what do you do? You know, it just makes it really scary. The thing I was going to talk about you mentioned, you know, has it gotten worse? And I think it absolutely has gotten worse for, for LGBT people over the last couple of years. I mean, I mean, the thing that's been happening with the right, I think, I mean, since before Trump, but especially since Trump, there's been this kind of move from marginalized group to marginalized group, sort of trying to organize around excluding and targeting them sort of seeing how that works as an electoral issue, mm -hmm. seeing how that works as a, I mean, it's both, it's both about winning elections. It's both about trying to use it to win elections and then about using elections to sort of like target people, you know, when you yeah, win elections. I mean, we had, you know, of course, Trump infamously proposed a Muslim ban in 2015. Right, right, right. Yeah. But right. the other thing that's kind of interesting in this connection that, that, you know, your comments are causing me to reflect on is that, you know, if, if you remember, I think it was in 2015, uh, maybe it was in 2016, the, the infamous images of Trump holding up a pride flag. And I think, you know, scrawled on it, it was LGBT for Trump or something like that. And, and that actually prompted that was the source of some of the commentary during the primary about how Trump was actually outflanking Hillary on the left on LGBT issues, which was always preposterous. But, you know, it, it was kind of those token gestures that sort of tricked, you know, some progressive commentators or at least ostensibly progressive commentators into buying that Trump was kind of this different type of Republican. And the idea, you know, here we are, you know, uh, six, seven years later, um, the notion of Trump, you know, during one of his rallies holding up a pride flag at this point um, is unfathomable or DeSantis for that matter, especially, you know, especially DeSantis. And so I think that's just kind of one, you know, 
one image or, you know, one kind of thought experiment that I think, you know, sort of reveals how things have changed in a, in a relatively short period of time where, again, you know, there's been this concerted effort on the right to make LGBT identities toxic and to sort of purge that from public life. You know, and of course, Trump went after immigrants. I mean, that was sort of his big push in 2016. And then in 2018, you know, there was all this stuff about the migrant caravan, which kind of, you know, led to that, to the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue. And that's just become you know, part it, of the Republican brand now. I mean, that's that's still a, mm-hmm. a strong undercurrent of Republican politics. You know, and Democrats have kind of, you know, Joe Biden's immigration policy is pretty bad. You know, I mean, like, it's sort of, there's been a lot of ground seated, I think. It, it seems like he's mostly trying to ignore the issue or, you know, not indulge right-wing efforts to make it, you know, kind of like issue number one, where we need to build the wall, we need to, you know... And I, you know, I get that politically that trying to, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately it's a congressional issue, right? Though I mean, there needs to be some sort of legislation. There's only so much that the executive can do, you know, to, to straighten out whatever issues are at the Southern border to kind of, you know, get more, get control over what's happening there. But, you know, my sense of Biden's stance on immigration is that he's trying to mostly ignore it for better or worse and maybe for worse. I mean, there's obviously always targeting of black people, you know, um, especially after the George Floyd protest. But, you know, I mean, there's, you know, DeSantis is also trying to censor black history in Florida, you know. Yeah, which is, I mean, it, there, there's some complexity to that because, you know, it's it's more that the, at least in terms of my understanding of what's happening in Florida, you know, they've created conditions where any parent can basically challenge a book in the library. And so one of them that was challenged that became a big national story was a book about Roberto Clemente, the baseball player experiencing racism in the U.S. That was challenged, you know, which the, the fact that that was removed from libraries became this huge story. And there is a sense in which DeSantis is trying to censor this. But he, with some plausible deniability, has been saying, look, you know, this is not something I want to censor. It, but but again, you know, when you kind of create the conditions where any book can be challenged by any parent, I mean, there's been stories now more recently of parents challenging the Bible and that being removed from from libraries. And so, it, you know, it's kind of a reductio ad absurdum of legislation of that sort in the first place. Yeah, he does see. I mean, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, how we need to not teach kids that, you know, how kids will be True. damaged if they learn about racism. I mean, right. You know, and he the CRT stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they they went after the uh, the news, the school in Florida. Right. Yeah. I mean, they sort of took over a school. But anyway, but I mean, I think definitely, you know, DeSantis's focus and the focus of increasingly has been on LGBT rights and especially on trans people. You know, trans people made. I mean, the thing about trans people made real gains in the last, you know. 10 years, even five years, you know, I mean, that people yeah. are, I mean, Biden, just, you Biden know, talking... appointed a, a trans woman as the, I believe she's like the secretary of the army or something like that. I might, I might have the specific office, right? Cause that was a big controversy when that happened. Um, but you know, yeah, a very high I mean, ranking just, military post. Yeah. You know, just thinking about my daughter, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I wouldn't say her school was perfect, but you know, I mean, there was a, I just think about like what would have happened if somebody come out of trans when I was a kid. Right. Yep. I mean, it would have been it would have been really a disaster. I mean, it just would have been impossible, you know, and now I mean, that's, you know, I was in northeastern Pennsylvania, which is more conservative. And it was, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But, you know, I mean, the difference, you know, in Chicago, you know, I mean, 
people knew what it was. I mean, there was efforts to sort of like accommodate in terms of like restroom facilities. There were, and they were, there were a lot of trans kids, you know, I mean, it's just more visible and sort of like more people understand what it is. So there's more, you know, people talk about that as contagion, but it's not contagion. It's just that people, you know, people are able to sort of like see that as a possibility for themselves yeah. and it not be, be, and you know, it doesn't have to be like it's, a disaster, you know, it's not something. dissimilar. Yeah. It's, it's not dissimilar from a hundred years ago where, you know, more and more people are left-handed and it's like, no, yeah, they're right. not. It's just, exactly. you know, it's become acceptable and more normal to right. be left-handed. So, and you know, there were healthcare options. So that's kind of the good thing. I mean, like in many ways, the society is a lot more welcoming and it's a lot more possible to be trans, you know, and my wife and I were, you know, informed on trans issues and very, you know, it sort of talked to her about them before we knew she was trans. So, I mean, mm -hmm. she knows she knew that we were accepting and we knew, you know, I mean, it's just a very different situation than it would, it, it would have been previously, but, you know, along with that visibility, it's a backlash, you know, I mean, this is kind of how it always works. If there's yeah. progress, there's often a reactionary backlash. And so, you know, there's this huge effort which, you know, has been abetted by mainstream media, by like the Atlantic and the New York Times, you know, have given. It's yeah, it's it's very much presented as a valid side of a debate, you know, being a bigot, essentially. And um, you, you see this especially with right wing media, which um, it's kind of its own its own thing. But, you know, how they've kind of normalized people being really mad about pride or, you know, things that I think, you know, most of us who are well adjusted are just fine with seem pretty normal but the effort especially over it, it, the past couple of years especially to make this kind of toxic and to platform bigots essentially as responsible voices you know taking a side in a political debate and i think that's that has spilled over to mainstream media a bit as well um and it's kind of surprising to me because i really felt you know i got into this a little bit last week with nikki mccann ramirez um you know she's a politics writer at rolling stone but she used to be at media matters and, um, you know, just how it really kind of felt, you know, in the wake of the 2015 Supreme Court decision, basically banning discrimination in same sex marriages, that, you know, it, it felt like conservatives had kind of taken the loss on this one. And, you know, it, it seems like it's really become more of a thing since Biden took office. And I'm not sure if that just became like a convenient kind of culture war crutch uh, to use to attack Democrats or what accounts for that. But um, that, that's been my experience, at least as someone kind of immersed in the media end of this, is that, you know, it's become much more of a live issue the last couple of years. And, you know, it didn't really work out that well um, for Republicans in the midterms, which you've also written extensively about, including in my newsletter, just the fact that, um, you know, given where Biden's polling was at heading into the midterms, it was kind of surprising how well Democrats did. And, you know, Republicans were running really heavy on the culture war at that time. But, you know, it doesn't really seem like... Um, they took that information and use it to make any sort of political adjustment at this point. No, I mean, you know, I mean, like, it's still like, it's quite unpopular, this sort of anti-trans stuff and a lot of the anti-LGBT stuff. I think that actually like abortion rights are kind of like related to that. And, the, the, you know, and taking those away is like super unpopular. So yeah, this stuff isn't popular. So, you know, the thing that Republicans are doing is they're trying to build this consensus by framing it around children and by, you know, you know, presenting LGBT identities as like sexual abuse, basically. And again, you know, I mean, like 
there are precedents for that because like, you know, in Nazi Germany, Jews were very assimilated. There was certainly anti-Semitism, but I mean, people look to Germany as a place where there was like, you know, less anti-Semitism or as a place where, you know, that wasn't really a huge huge problem. And, you know, I mean, one of the things Hitler did was looked at sort of how the U.S. discriminated against black people to sort of like figure out how to like create a consensus against Jewish people. Like, you know, and sort of like the conclusion was, well, you can just like, like if you just start to sort of like discriminate against people ad hoc you can sort of like build a consensus that yeah. that's the right thing to do the other scary thing is that i mean you don't need like on the one hand it's kind of like okay it's not popular so that's good and sort of heartening but you don't exactly need a majority support to put in place a lot of discrimination and violence yeah. The clearest example of this is, um, and this is a slightly different issue, but, you know, where Republicans, when it comes to guns, are like overwhelmingly on the wrong side of the issue, where it's like 80 percent of Americans when they're polled say they want more gun restrictions, not fewer. And yet, you know, in these red states, I mean, even House Republicans, you know, I think uh, or maybe it's both House and Senate next week are taking up a bill that would basically uh, prohibit a restriction on pistols that I think is in place right now, you know, basically rolling back additional gun restrictions and you know, that's like a 20 percent viewpoint, but um, they, you know, they're successful in in enacting legislation of this sort in many instances. Right. And the same with abortion rights. You know, yeah. I mean, like those are over people are overwhelmingly opposed to the Republican position, even like Republicans aren't, you know, on board with a lot of this legislation. As you can see in places like Kansas, you know, where they they put it on the bat, they put a you know, should we over, you know, they basically put like abortion restrictions on the ballot in this red state and they got thumped, you know, but because the sort of like Republicans are advantaged in a lot of ways by things like the Senate, the Senate, you know, yeah, for the sure. Senate is a big one, but also the Electoral College, also gerrymandering. It's easier to gerrymander Democrats because they're concentrated in cities, you know, they have a lot of leeway to sort of like put in place really draconian cruel policies, you know, even with like a pretty small minority and places like Texas and Florida, I mean, like, you know, a lot of people live there, you know, and they're, they're sort of like relatively narrow Republican majorities, which can really make life kind of unendurable for queer people and black people and, women, you know, and kind of kind of any of these groups that they want to target. Yeah. One thing I want to ask you about that's kind of related to this conversation that I think um, is also kind of a, a recurring theme in your work, um, but it's something that I sometimes, you know, struggle with. Uh, I mean, like yourself, I've read extensively on Nazi Germany, you know, 20, 20th century authoritarianism more broadly, I would say, but um you, you know, like to or, you know, oftentimes we'll use the word fascism to talk about what's happening, uh, especially, obviously, with Republicans in the U.S. right now. How would you define that as like a political as a brand of politics um, that distinguishes it from other forms of authoritarianism that people might commonly think about? Because, you know, I think in some applications, the word can be used in kind of a, a lazy way or like a, a catch all. I know that that's not the way that you use it, but how would you kind of specify what fascism is? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the sort of like 
main and i'm sort of like thinking about definitions by like people like jason stanley and uh robert o paxton i mean i think the core of fascism is this sort of that fascism sort of like defines an in-group and an out-group in terms of sort of like purity there's a belief that there's a pure community the volk you know is what the fascists called it but you know you could say in the u.s it's white people and that that's the only legitimate source of political power and that you know there are kind of other marginalized people who are not in that community who are a threat and who need to be excluded from power and controlled and exterminated so fascist authoritarianism is justified as needed in order to like control these marginalized populations and then the authority and then that authoritarian power is used to crush marginalized people and i think you know that's 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 pretty different from like i don't know like communist totalitarian regimes have like i mean sometimes take like parts of that there was definitely an in-group and an out outgroup in like soviet communism you know right the, the, the right i mean you know and that's was, sort of yeah. like you know you could say but you know there's kind of like the ideological justifications are, are pretty different you know the nazis were like quite explicit about you know only the voke matter and these other groups are just filth and you know republicans you know i mean you know history's gone on and sort of like making those arguments is now more controversial because we know what happened in the holocaust but you know i mean republicans are often pretty straightforward about about you know that the laws should shouldn't really that you know that there should be different standards for themselves and for others and that's sure. often sort of like criticized as hypocrisy but i think it's like it's not really hypocrisy it's that they like they literally think that like white men and you know conservatives i mean it kind of like the edges blur but basically yeah. white male conservatives have a different standard because they're the actual people who matter and everybody else needs to be controlled and policed yeah well there um, was some of that i mean i think you know some clear examples of that were if we reflect back on the months following the 2020 election you know trump basically explicitly trying to disenfranchise voters in detroit in Philadelphia and these, you know, largely uh, black in many instances, Milwaukee, another one, these cities where, you know, under the the pretense of there being some sort of election fraud. But, you know, I think that was also that was in group out group, but it was also trying to control certain communities. Um, yeah, I think you're right that there is, you know, it's a little harder to think of examples of the you know, the double standard mentality, although with Trump, I mean, it's often kind of dressed up around the guise of you know, very legal and very cool, or, you know, when, when you're the president, you can do whatever you want kind of thing. Um, well, so, you, you can know, see yeah. it. With, you can see it with Daniel Penny, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, like the, this law and order stuff, right? I mean, Republicans are all about, oh, you've got to follow the law unless you're a white vigilante. You know, I mean, like, I mean, yeah. the law and order stuff is always framed. It's always like, you know, the law is always actually like, you know, white male whatever, whatever you right? interpret it yeah and, and similar with a lot of like the stand your ground you know right. shooting people who look at you the wrong way or right you know, right it's you off like, the traffic yeah right 
I mean, I think the thing about fascism, I mean, Jason Stanley kind of talks about this a lot. U.S. fascist history arguably goes back before the Nazis, you know, I mean, like, you know, American genocide of native peoples was an inspiration for the for the Nazis. American treatment of black people was an inspiration for the Nazis. I mean, this kind of white supremacy, which I think is is core to fascism, white nationalism or in-group nationalism, you know, that's been around for a long time. I mean, you know, you look at the Ku Klux Klan, I mean, that, that looks like a fascist movement in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think people... I mean, there are kind of other characteristics that people talk about, like a charismatic leader, and they say, well, you know, some the U.S. has less of that. Though, now there's Trump, you know, so he's yeah. kind of... There's also the the alliances with big business, um, at least in, like, the Italian and German context. Uh-huh. Um, right. Yeah. I feel like those are kind of less important and vary yeah. more from place to place, but the sort of, the sort of, like, core idea of sort of, like, a pure a pure community which needs to crush outsiders is seems like the most important bit to well, me. That's, that. Right. Well, that, you know, that came through very clearly in DeSantis's speech, you know, where he launched his presidential campaign. He said that he will destroy leftism in this country, uh, which I think I pretty, that's pretty close to his direct quote on that. And, um, you know, I, I that's certainly, um, you know, if a Democrat came out and said, I'm running for president to crush, uh, right wing extremism, or well, I guess extremism is kind of its own thing, but to, to you know, leftism is pretty anodyne. If someone said, I'm, I'm here to crush the Republican Party or something like that, I mean, that would be you know, th- there'd be special Hannity coverage that would last for uh weeks, if not months. I think, well, you know, the mainstream, yeah. the mainstream media gets freaked, you know, sort of has a double standard there, too. I mean, there's kind of the thing is that like a lot of these mainstream pundits aren't fascist, but they're kind of racist, you know. I mean, like, racist logics are very powerful and very present in the u.s and you know fascists take advantage of that they take advantage of the fact that when you say these kind of this party this white party is fascist and dangerous people say well you know those are like you know those are like white people at ohio diners you know they're yeah they're 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 the they're the they're the heart of the of of america you know, and 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 they get upset and they feel like you're attacking America. Yeah, I, but if I you think say, of it, yeah, no, but I, if you know, but ahead, if yeah. but if Trump says, you know, Chicago is a shithole, you know, pundits are like, oh, that's kind of funny, or you know, oh yeah. well, oh he shouldn't say that, but they don't see it as like attack on America because it's like obviously like an attack on black people and like yeah, they're just like reflexively not considered part of the pure community, even by kind of mainstream pundits. Well, that, that, that's interesting that you put it that way, because I tend to think of it more as appeasement than, you know, being like ideological fellow travelers. And, you know, you kind of got into this a little bit, or I, I guess it was a little bit of a subtext of your post today, which was framed around the Nikki Haley town hall on CNN, or at least it led with that um, on Sunday, where, you know, Nikki Haley, um, you know, the piece opens with this, she basically tried to link uh, polling that shows that, you know, cis teen girls have relatively high rates of uh, contemplating suicide or some polling showing that I don't even think it's cis yeah, teen girls. I think well, that's, what, that's what she was saying. Yeah, yeah, um, she was claiming that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not exactly sure what polling she was referring to, but basically she said that it's like a third of teen she's girls. echoing Matt Walsh. 
Yes, it's right. A, and and um, so but her the, the point of what she was trying to say is that one of the reasons for this, as she puts it, is biological boys and girls locker rooms. And, you know, obviously there's been no link established between that. I mean, that's part of the, the broader project, which we've been talking about of, you know, making uh, trans identities toxic and kind of marginalizing them. But, you know, one aspect that we did not get into in the newsletter, but I posted a tweet kind of fleshing this out, is that the moderator, Jake Tapper, um, instead of pushing back on this, kind of indulged the framing, pivoted to, you know, a comment that was on point, you know, basically saying that there's also really high rates of suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts among the trans community, but like did not really push back on the underlying assertion, this linkage that Nikki Haley was trying to make between trans youth and, you know, teens being suicidal more broadly. And so to me, you know, that that to me was kind of an example of, of how I think a lot of these pundits or journalists, you know, kind of bend over backward to appear fair to both sides or kind of privilege bigoted viewpoints as being a valid side of a debate. And so, you know, I, I've tended to think about that, at least in more mainstream contexts, through more of an appeasement frame than like a, you know, sympathetic frame necessarily. But I, you know, certainly when you get into Fox, Newsmax, further right wing. I mean, I think it's like, it's dodgy and uncertain, right? Because I mean, CNN has definitely made a turn to the right. And that seems to be in part about some sort of ideological sympathy with the right by the people in charge, by Chris the, Licht, the former maybe. people. Yeah, Chris Licht, RIP. I guess. Or yeah, he's not dead, but he's no longer the. He's no longer oh, running CNN. Oh, you missed that. Yeah, that was the big story this morning. He he was ousted as the uh, the head of CNN. So, um, which right. yeah, I, I think I brought. The, I, I mentioned that in passing earlier in the context of that Tim Alberta right, Atlantic right, right, piece right, that right. ended up being yeah. kind of his downfall. But uh, but yeah, his his legacy lives on because tonight there is a Mike Pence town hall on CNN. Next week, there is a Chris Christie town hall on CNN. So um, his his impact will be felt at least tonight and into next week with some of these Republican. Yeah, but, you know, tunnels. what I what I see, you know, what I see, you know, Jim Acosta sort of like letting her get away with that, too. You know, I mean, I see somebody who doesn't know a lot of trans people. Well, it, right? it was Jake. It was Jake Tapper. Jake to be Tapper. Clear. I'm sorry. Yeah, not, no, I'm yeah. sorry. No, Thank no, you. But... Acosta is an interesting character in all of this because you know he was known as being like this you know left of center um kind of rabble rouser during the trump era as you know he was accused of assaulting an intern over a doctored video at one point and you know the, the tim alberta piece kind of got into this um without naming acosta's name that chris licked had had dinner um the subtext was very clear that it was that it was with acosta and they had come to some sort of agreement that he would tone it down a little bit and when you watch his shows on weekends, he hosts a weekend show where he has a lot of Republicans on there and he will still kind of grill them, you know, ask some tough questions here and there. But he doesn't really go for the jugular. It's more kind of like sparring rather than, you know, really having like a hard hitting interview. Um, so it'll be interesting even as soon as this weekend to see if that changes now that Chris Licht is out. And, you know, if the direction kind of reverts back to where CNN was, you know, as recently as a year ago uh, before Chris Licht took over. But I, I do want to pivot to one other topic here before I let you go in the final few minutes that we have left. That's a little bit less bleak. Um, you know, if, if you made it this deep into the podcast, you're probably okay with, you know, bleak and somewhat heavy conversation, but um, you know, in case you're kind of jonesing for something a little bit lighter um, I saw that you had kind of an interesting exchange, or I guess you may, you mainly quote tweeted. It wasn't really, I, I did not see if you replied or not, but with uh, Sank Uger um, in response to a tweet that he posted basically saying that Biden is doomed next year because his polling is in the 30s and this guarantees a Republican win. 
you've written a little bit about this in my newsletter, but you know, for those who haven't read that, um, what is your optimistic case? And I don't even know if it's necessarily optimistic. I think it's just kind of the rational case for the, you know, Biden having a strong chance of winning a second term next year. Well, the, I mean, the biggest issue is that like polling, just polling this far out, just like has nothing to do with anything, you know, Reagan before his like, you know, huge second term victory, you know, his polls were crap. <laughs> you know, yeah, because the, the economy was terrible and the, you know, this far it, out. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. So that's the first thing. You know, the second thing is Biden's polls now are about what they were going into the 20, the, 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 the 2022 midterms. And, you know, he had a historic, he had a huge historic victory. And that's not to say that if his polls are bad going into 2024, that he'll have a huge historic victory. It's just like, we kind of don't know, you know, we don't really know what's going on. Like our polls, not as predictive, you know, what's going to happen with his polls in, 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 in a year and a half. I mean, like, you know, what's going to happen to the Republican party? Like that party is not healthy. The front runner is like, you know, facing like multiple indictments. I mean, there's kind of just like, you just can't predict anything like a year and a half out. And, you know, I mean, like people sort of like hitting the panic button, well, you know, Senk is sort of like was like claiming that there's some sort of like, you know, democratic conspiracy to like prevent, you know, other party figures running and to like, you know, sideline outsiders. And it's all just nonsense, you know. I mean, like, you know, JB Pritzker and Meg Whitmer aren't running for like the very simple reason that they think they lose. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean like and, and it like, would make them toxic going forward to do right. That. And they they lose like running and losing a big primary always has a cost. Mm-hmm. It's a sitting president. You know, people don't generally challenge the sitting president because it's like a huge risk. There's an incumbency advantage and people are just, yeah, I mean, in the party, the people who are in the party, it's not like people on top are manipulating it. Like what people right. don't understand is like democratic partisans are democratic partisans. Like there's a, you know, people who vote Democrat, like identify as Democrats they're going to be pissed if you challenge the leader of the party for like no reason and like you know kind of like a lot of downsides and they're not interested in voting for like these like obvious grifters <laughs> like like Marianne like Williamson RFK or, Jr. yeah or Robert, Robert Kennedy Jr. Yeah. or you know <clears throat> like whoever you know Marianne I mean like Williamson. it's like it's like yeah. these like you know these these like very canny pundits are like who often kind of I mean, some of these people are not really Democratic partisans. I mean, they're kind of, you know, there's kind of this part of the left that's kind of anti-Democratic partisans even. And I'm not like necessarily like that's. Yeah, I, I, mean, I would not fact, I would not consider you a Democratic partisan by any means, which, you know. Me? I mean, yeah. I kind of am. I vote for Democrats. You, you are? Okay, well, well, yeah, but but I, you're also very critical of Democrats. In I'm the very sense critical that, yeah, of them, but I'm not but, a cheerleader. You know, I mean, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, I'm ve- I, I can be very critical. Um, and, you know, I think it's fine to be very critical and it's even fine, you know, like, you know, people, people vote for all sorts of reasons and, and whatever, but the idea that, you know, the idea that there's some sort of, cons- that, I mean, basically sometimes people like Senk will sort of make it look like, will sort of claim that like democratic partisanship is some sort of conspiracy that right. like the fact that like, that like people aren't interested in like an alternative to the incumbent or that, or- you know, Democrats aren't rallying around Marianne Williamson is like some yeah. sort of like, 
you know, trick. And it's not yeah. a trick or, you know, or think it just... would be. Yeah. Or just think it would be a bad idea for Biden to go through a bruising like primary. And it, why, why should he debate these people? I mean, there's just no there's no upside. There's only downside. One of the big advantages of being a, an incumbent is that you get to skip that part, you know, in most instances, right. unless you're right. You know, and also, I mean, yeah, Biden's approval, you know, his numbers are one thing, but I think on his record, most Democrats feel pretty good about that. And that makes it difficult. You know, if, if your only case is that his polls are low, um, you know, I'd like to see what any other, you know, had um, Elizabeth Warren won the primary. And if she was president right now, I bet her polls would probably be low because there were a lot of factors heading in to these four years that made it really tough. We were going to have inflation or we were going to have really high unemployment. And, you know, we Biden decided to go the way of having inflation rather than unemployment. And, you know, there's a cost to that. I mean, the other thing about Biden is like he keeps winning Democratic partisans. I mean, for lots of like pretty reasonable reasons, put a high premium on winning. And Biden has won more national elections than like probably anyone alive. Right. Well, I mean, he, well he went, he went, they weren't national elections. He won in uh, Delaware many, many times over. But he, but um, he was on the ticket with Obama. True. So he yep. so he won he won two he won two with Obama, and then he won in twenty twenty, and then he won in twenty twenty two. That's like, yep. you know, I mean, like there just aren't that many people who've done that. And, and now, now mean, he sir- has a he has an unlikely alliance with uh, Kevin McCarthy. Now Kevin's helping him out, uh, <laughs> with, you know, keep the Freedom Caucus in check on the far right. right. So, so I mean, I think people just think of it, think that you know, I mean, people think that like you know, he he's won before, he's more likely to win again than. Robert Kennedy Jr., you know, I mean, and I think that that's like, I mean, on the one hand, like, that's not, you know, scientific polling. That's not like, like, was it really about him? You know, I mean, not necessarily, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, like, it's like not a crazy heuristic. It's not like somebody else has a much better way of approaching that, you know, he like won in one with Obama, he won in 2020, he won in 2022. Why would we switch? That's a reasonable question. Well, and there's also just a very obvious point that, you know, elections are, as Biden points out, they're, they're choices between two people, not a choice between one person and the almighty. And so as, as you were talking about earlier, I mean, you know, we're talking on Wednesday morning. Um, there's a non-zero chance that a federal indictment drops this week on Trump. You know, there's still the Georgia investigation. Um, you know, DeSantis, I think, has his own issues just in terms of interpersonal skills and kind of retail politicking. Um it seems like the more people get to know him in that respect, the worse it goes. Um, you know, he insulates himself from any sort of interaction with mainstream press. Like, how is well, that going to play during the other debates? Issue so, yeah. With DeSantis winning, which I don't see people talking about much, is that like, would Trump concede? He never Probably concedes. Probably not. I mean, at this yeah, point, I mean, he yeah, never concedes. Yeah, I mean, so, I, what does that look like if there's a Republican, you know, if DeSantis wins the Republican <laughs> primary and Trump is like, no way, vote for me anyway? Well, people right? also forget. I mean, remember, even when Trump is kind of on your side, it, it can be really bad because think back on those Georgia Senate races right after 2020, you know, where uh, it was Kelly Leffler and um, Purdue, you know, both lost um, in Georgia. But I remember because I was live clipping those rallies in December and then he had one that was like two days before January 6th. It was like on January 4th of 21 where he was down there in Georgia, ostensibly campaigning for these candidates but the whole thing was just kind of a grievance fest whining about the election you know he like barely even mentioned 
these candidates. So, you know, I could very much see him, uh, you know, I guess hitting the trail, quote unquote, quote unquote, for DeSantis, but just using it to whine about being indicted or, you know, conspiracies against him and, and it actually being quite counterproductive. So, yeah, no matter which way that goes, I think it'll be bad if Trump loses for Republicans. Right. And like the Republicans could win, like that would be horrible. And it's definitely something to you can worry about. And I worry about it. But I mean, I don't I just don't, you know, this like panicked assurance that like Biden is going to doom us because his numbers aren't great right now. I mean, it's just it's just based on nothing. It's just yeah. silliness. Well, thanks, Noah. Really appreciate all your time this morning. Oh, yeah. Um, thanks for having me on. I, I had a whole suite of questions here about journalism that I plan to ask you about, but we're up against it. So I'll have to have right you back on down the line to, uh, all right. to talk more about that. So sounds good. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Bye bye. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in. 